From Normality to Abstraction, Dina and Dina's recent work, Wilfred Wang. Many casual observers would consider Dina and Dina's buildings to be normal, without extraordinary flair. Few would see them, few, few would see in them any unusual honed position that seeks to confront the broader culture of the everyday, working with its common components in order to restate the fundamental issue in the art of building, how to make users and occupiers of built edifices realize in the most obvious and self-evident way that everyone might find physical and conceptual shelter from which to understand the world as it is. Basel, at the junction of three countries, in his Dina and Dina's principal place of production and the place where the work may be properly understood when experienced in its setting. The Swiss city on the Rhine is home to pharmaceutical industries, insurance companies, banks and their related workers. It developed over the last century into an urban fabric of low, occasionally freestanding apartment buildings around the medieval inner city. Aside from their love for the fine arts, Basel's citizens appear well accustomed to a frugal life, a characteristic that may be perceived from the city's buildings. Like many European cities, Basel contains houses, offices, public buildings and factories that together form a seemingly indestructible backdrop to everyday life of an expected contemporary conventionality. Marcus Diener has been practicing in Basel since the early 1940s and contributed to it a significant number of housing units and public facilities, notably cinemas. It is no exaggeration to state that these buildings have helped to give the city its visual characteristic. Since the mid-1980s, Roger Diener, Dieter Rigatti and Jens Erb have been responsible for the designs of the practice of Dina and Dina. In the mid-1970s, Roger Gina joined the office together with Dieter Rigetti, who had already been working with Marcus Dina. Wolfgang Schett joined them in 1976 and left in 1984. In the last few years, younger architects such as Andreas Rudi and Daniel Stefani have become part of the office. Their studies at the, ETH, at the ETH Zurich, with its continued emphasis on the early Swiss modern architects such as Le Corbusier and the new interest in the disregarded futures such as Karl Moser, Otto Slavsberg, Hans Bernoulli, Otto Sen and Max Bill, as well as their exposure to 20th century Italian architecture grounded in their initial projects the formal rigour of such precedents. Like a number of their contemporary architects, Dina and Dina believe that buildings embodying ordinary activities such as working or living require less a symbolic elaboration of forms than the more direct integration of patterns of life within a dignified environment whose relatively precise definition ought not to interfere with those recognized patterns of life, but on the contrary, should allow for an unforeseen broader range of uses. This differentiated view of architecture's role is part of the debate that was conducted at the various Congress International de Architecture Moderne. Sh should there be an imposed formal language 
or architectural language derived from an analysis of contemporary needs and constructional systems, such as Le Corbusier's Five Points, or should each task be first comprehended on its own terms from its inner being before a form is developed, as Hugo Herring argued. Dina and Dina's work of the late 1970s is closer to the ideas of Le Corbusier and subsequent arbiters of norms and types as Aldo Rossi. A, a gradual transformation has taken place since then, in which Dina and Dina have maintained their fundamental belief in the use of the simplest normative architectural elements, windows, rooms, urban blocks, while presenting their continued research on the issue of self-evidence in architecture. The concerns that have led to this position are part of an inquiry combining the act of building with the act of criticism. Dina and Dina share the insights of Central European intellectual discourse that has for many years now been part of the quest for directness of a built edifice's comprehension without loss of either complexity or self-evidence. Thus, over the years, Dina and Dina's buildings and designs have been weaned away from a dependence on literal formal references and compositional metaphors that are deemed to be part of a transformed architectural norm. The work has begun to embrace a version of the concept of abstraction whose roots may be traced to the beginning of the 20th century from projects like by Kazimir Malevich and the plastic studies of the de Stael, perfected in the houses of Aileen Gray and extended in another direction by the work of Joseph Frank, to the later buildings by Leverance, the underlying thrust of the work may be said to have been re-established, a re-establishment of a self-evident, direct and immediate mode of communication without recourse to formal motifs that had, broadly speaking, obfuscated a built edifice's principal cultural statement. Abstraction in architecture has been realised with a greater or lesser material discipline. In fact, a fact that in the case of the subsequent new neoplasticist designs has led to arbitrary compositional freedoms. In the strictest case, however, abstraction in architecture has permitted the surmounting of the dilemma of formal invention of instantly recognisable motifs from the hand of an architectural genius. In offering a reading on the recent work of Dina and Dina, it seems productive to present some of the thoughts that may, have, that may become commonplace today. Some of these thoughts may account for Dina and Dina's early affinity with the white architecture of the interwar years, so influenced in Switzerland from the 1950s to the 70s, their exposure to two significant texts in architectural history, Aldo Rossi's Architecture in the City and Robert Venturi's Complexity and Contradiction, and the reading of Joseph Frank's written and built work, notably the provocative irony of Frank and Walt at Frank and Black's house in the Wenzgasse 12 in 1929-30, Vienna. Other thoughts indicate the path taken by the more recent projects away from such a literal adherence to what has become the convention of Switzerland, convention in Switzerland, a path that is leading towards the architectural uncovering of a cultural and social program significant, 
could program its significance by engaging the material dimensions of place and construction. This architectural attempt to uncover something that is usually taken for granted, so normal that it has escaped the field of active perception, while consisting of actual concrete physical matter, appears to be contradictory. This apparent contradiction seems further compounded by the formal and spatial strategies employed by Dina and Dina's recent buildings and projects, strategies that actually render the designs less distinct, even amorphous, from the point of view of the object-fixed norm that has been common to both past and, and modern architecture. A prerequisite to the surmounting of the dilemma of formal invention and related to it, the overcoming of object fixation is the attitude of the built, built edifice's inconspicuousness and the author's self-effacement. Undoubtedly, amongst some self-respecting architects, this attitude of an architect's self-effacement is usually met with incomprehension. Amongst architectural critics, especially amongst those assuming the responsibilities of guardians of the greater good, the encounter with an addition to the urban landscape that successfully asserts links at numerous levels with the immediate and distinct past, the context and so forth, using an architectural language that seemingly makes no attempts at either invention or nostalgic repetition, that apparently makes no attempts at positing a different formal language to that which is common today, Indeed, using an architectural language that tautologically embraces the common elements of everyday architecture, thereby equating the building's recent completion with a reference to recent architecture, such an encounter will almost in inevitably be read as a provocation. The relatively inconspicuous built edifice is born from an attitude that understands it is just another element in a broader context, even to the extent of allowing it to both exist as an independent coherent statement while also sharing the formal and spatial sensibilities of its neighboring predecessors, however banal they may be. The notion of the inconspicuous built edifice is part of the long tradition that recognizes the responsibilities involved in the design of the general overall environment. This tendency reached a maturity in mid-18th century English landscape practice and theory, wherein landscape was calculated to immediate nature. From the vantage point of other artistic disciplines from which attempts were made at encompassing the seemingly disunited arts and in which the modes of production were more clearly present and perceivable than in the picturesque landscape, though nevertheless not providing for the principal medium to become subsumed by the communicating objects, a comprehensive statement that would draw on all the encompassed art forms seeking to elicit an emotional response might be defined as an example of a total work of art. Thus, for instance, Richard Wagner's search for, a sub, for the subliminal synthesis of music, drama, poetry, and the, and the perfect opera house. With the spectre of the absolute artistic genius amorally fusing with ambiguous ideological content or equally dubious, naively bringing forth techniques of communication that permit its appropriation by more singular interests, the notion of rhetoric and the total work of art came under 
dialectic review in the late 19th century, uh, century. Gradually, these realms of thought became uh, tainted. Over time, the realization that artistic manipulations fell short of a coherent synthesis brought forth topics of criticism that pointed to the disjunctions in such works of art. Some of these topics were those of the mask, the false facade, the historic, the histrionic, sorry, that is the exaggerated theatrical performance, the duplicitous, duplicitous nature of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Unknown moral qualities were equated with the abyss. At times, architecture was derided as a stage set. Urban design was put down as a Potemkin village. Their philosophical insubstantiality ironically matched by their material slightness. All these were modes of criticisms with which a generation of early 20th century architects became impregnated. However, at the same time, the cultural criticism of the gradually disintegrating society, the fear expressed in the decline of the West by Oswald Spengler and the loss of the centre by Hans Selmayr was the obverse side of the delight in the realisation that virtually anything had become technically possible and that there should be a quest for the comp contemporariness of things in search for synchronic unity. Amongst architects, Loos's essays in Spoken into the Void brought, brought this historiographic infatuation with synchronic, synchronic order to the field of everyday objects, using it as a weapon against the Werkbund and other arts and crafts architects who had dared to poke their hands into the spokes of the wheel of time. Le Corbusier's Towards an Architecture flowed with an optimistic chastisement of the hopelessly out of date. However, the nightmare of the architect as a person with absolute control over the production and reproduction of every aspect of culture as a technocrat with global powers was to become a reality in the figure of Albert Speer. From the staging of the National Socialist Party's rallies at the Nuremberg grounds designed by Speer to his subversion by the German armaments in uh, to his supervision of the German armaments industry and the ineluctable logic of architecture as the mother of all muses, an idea that had also motivated much neoclassical architectural theory. Gottfried Semper, as well as the structure of the Bauhaus, became a fateful version of the total work of art. For the 20th century architects then, the concept of the total work of art had to be confronted and the architectural consequences had to be drawn. While the ability to invent the symbols of one's time may not have been renounced by every designer and client, some architects have felt it more appropriate to attempt an understanding of the inner being of a building task before searching for a suitable spatial and formal solution. With this criticism of the culturally desirable limits of architecture's influence expressed by Josef Frank, who shared Loos's rejection of the all-controlling designer 
as expressed in the latter's essay of a poor rich man in 1900, the important, though suppressed, attitude of an open, enabling architecture had been articulated. Thus, Frank had used a mixture of furniture, old and new, though none of tubular steel, as these were considered to be largely ornamental, in his houses, and that the, the latter were apparently haphazard in their design, though this was a quality that provided him with an architectural critique of the Bauhaus, an institution that, according to Frank, had continued the erroneous trajectory set out by the Werkbund in attempting to determine aesthetic standards at the same time as establishing technical norms. Indeed, Frank had foreseen the connection between the total work of art and totalitarianism, see Joseph Frank's Architectural Symbols, published in 1931. Given the above tentative observations of some of the thoughts that are believed to be underlying Dina and Dina's designs, it became possible to see themes that continue to pass through the work while others are discarded. There is an interest in the resolution of the context while at the same time being able to structure the building's interior with its own relatively autonomous logic. From the apartment and bank building on the Bergfeldplatz in Basel, 1982-1985, the competition entry for the apartment buildings on the Lusenring in Basel, 1989, and the two residential units at the St. Alban Tau, 1984 to 1986, and to the apartment building on the Friedhofstrasse, 1990 to 1992, it is possible to discern the differentiated facade treatments responding to various variations in the surrounding scales and pre-existing elements, enclosing rows of undifferentiated rooms that in turn hold at their centers vertical circulation kitchens and bathrooms. At St. Albantal, configurational elements such as the south-facing roof terrace responding to the gallery of the former city wall, the reinforced concrete frame referring to the 19th century warehouse that previously occupied the site, and wooden boarded facade, while certainly being different, nevertheless allow the buildings to form a unity. Contextually, the two volumes maintain the river frontage, the enclosure of the square, the presence of the small stream and the passage along the old city wall. Coupled with the straightforward interior volumes, the compositional synthesis synthesizes a number of diverse readings, ideally fusing the memory of the old with the requirements of the new. In the case of the competition entry for the apartment buildings on the Lusenring, Luser, mm, the configuration's articulation suggests the desire to merge the two volumes of the surrounding fabric while also indicating a semi-enclosure of a square. The building's roofline ascends and falls to negotiate the existing diffuse skyline. As with the St. Alban Towers units, the two apartment buildings for the Lucernering have an identity. This identity is not achieved at the expense of the new neighbor of the neighborhood's cognitive clarity. On the contrary, the new square 
the court between the two volumes in the south-facing garden acknowledged the existing types and defined new external spaces. The main facade material was to have been painted sand cement render with timber frame windows, much the same as their neighbours. The apartment building on the Friedrichhofstrasse sits amongst a group of residential units of the 1950s and 60s. Its mass is articulated in such a way that external spaces are defined which are both sympathetic to the adjacent building type as well as giving its three wings different orientations. In this respect, Frank's preference for projecting volumes may be cited. See his article, Raum and Angrechtung in 1934. The spaces at the ends of the projections can be freely subdivided. The windows and balconies underline the limits of open framework. Two windows on the south facade are not aligned with the rest so that the building assumes an informal appearance. The above mentioned balance between inner structure and external articulation mediated by a facade that consists of normative elements arranged on an irregular grid may be seen as an important instance in Basel's inner city. The new headquarters buildings for an insurance company stands opposite the low rear entrance hall to the Kunstmuseum by Christ and Bonatz. In a dialogue with the setback First Christian Science Church by Otto Salvesberg. The headquarters takes up the undulating skyline of the surrounding buildings. The differentiated masses as seen in Mies van der Rohe's work in North America, Lafayette Park Housing Project, Detroit and the Toronto Domino Center in Toronto. The, the Dominions, the Toronto Dominion Center in Toronto and in Alison Petersmith's Econ Economist Complex finds a condensed translation in Basel's insurance headquarters a, B, A, B, longitudinal rhythm with lower and taller, longer and shorter articulation. On the interior, the traditional dense core is combined with a dilating corridor that marks endpoints, crossovers and the building's structure. All office spaces are therefore column-free. The architecture, so to speak, has been excised from the spaces of the main activity together with the light greenstone cladding, aluminium window frames, and plain glass, the literal and phenomenal layering of the building establish, establishes an exemplary inner city addition, complex yet self-evidence, contemporary yet capable of a dialogue with others. The theme of collating seemingly autonomous facades, first seen in the apartment bank building on the Burgerfield Platz, Bergfield Platz of involving metaphors to structure and enclosure finds a latter realization in the Gmurzki is G M U R Z Y N S K A gallery in Cologne, nineteen eighty eight to nineteen ninety. The large square panel above the main entrance suggests a picture frame. The dimension that, is that it occupies together with the structural frame that, it, that are revealed, celestial windows, 
suggests a sliding storage space. The literalness of this metaphor is subdued. The above interpretation perhaps itself exaggerated. What remains significant in the two buildings is the discrete manner in which these compositional techniques are used. The collage and the metaphor never submit the configuration to a secondary role. This small selection from Dina and Dina's of gives a glimpse of an unusual attitude in the late 20th century architecture. It is an attitude that has its intellectual and contextual history without doubt. The work may be considered to belong to the extended tradition of the Enlightenment, albeit an Enlightenment that has undergone dialectical reappraisal as indicated above. Dina and Dina's work reveals an understanding of the limits of architecture's influence, the limits of any form of scientific environmental determinism. Without being banal, the buildings are as straightforward as possible. Dina and Dina avoid superficial elegance in the detail as well as in the urban gesture. Instead, as in the art of mathematics, they seek the elegant idea to the architectural solution. The work suggests that architecture's task consists of the construction of a cultural ethical framework within which the process of abstraction guides the inquiry into the design of space and form. It is perhaps a search for the almost nothing, a formal minimalism whose ontological essence may nevertheless be intuited by its users and occupiers through immediate experience.